0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia 2022 holiday special. Joshne Meragan Mubarak. Now, we're on year four of this, and I've got no clue how you'd make it this deep into the podcast feed without knowing. But for the unenlightened, rather than doing a truly annual holiday special for the same holiday year after year... I jump from one holiday to another to celebrate all of the many, many festivals from a variety of cultures that weave through the history of ancient Persia. The very first time I did this, it kind of snuck up on me, so I talked about food and celebrated the Zoroastrian winter feast of Shabayalda. Then we did Achaemenid-Noruz, the Persian New Year, And last year I jumped over to Judaism to talk about Purim, a celebration associated with Esther, the legendary Jewish queen who married Xerxes I and saved her people from genocide. This year, we're back to Zoroastrianism, and Iran more broadly, to celebrate Maragon, the Zoroastrian Feast of Mithra, and something a bit like Iranian Thanksgiving in the modern country a big secular harvest festival to give thanks for what you have, love your family, and enjoy seasonal foods while exchanging heartfelt greeting cards and notes. Today, Maragon is a very colorful and fragrant holiday. Brightly colored clothes, especially yellows and reds, are part of the tradition. Especially new clothes given as gifts because some light gift-giving is also part of the celebration. So is setting up a centerpiece display table with a purple tablecloth, and that table becomes the locus of celebration. The tablecloth itself is either fringed with dried margarine leaves, or those are scattered around on top. Right in the middle, there's a mirror, or a polished plate, often a very decorative piece for the holiday, and celebrators surround this with all of the necessary accoutrements. The necessities include a dish of kohl, that classic thick, dark eyeliner that people mostly associate with ancient Egypt and American football these days, some scented candles, usually aloeswood or ambergris, a dish of rosewater, flowers, especially violets or evergreens like rhododendron a dish of marjoram water filled with lotus seeds and silver coins, an incense or frankincense burner with a bowl of espon seeds to throw into the flames, and treats that will make it look like they just cleared out an Iranian grocery store, because they kinda did. Staple foods include, but are not limited to, pistachio, almond, hazelnut, pomegranate, apples, grapes, quince, figs, persimmon, sea berries, dates, chickpeas, and sunflower seeds. But the absolutely essential thing is a seven-grain bread or seven-grain soup with a thick crust bread beside it and a cold glass of charbat, a sweet cordial flavored with fruits and spices that comes in just about every conceivable flavor when you think of stereotypical Middle Eastern flavors that Western people would never think to put in a drink. The Persian specialty often mixes in milk and, what else, saffron. The sharbat specifically is a secular and or Islamic adaptation, which it has to be since it was only invented around 1100 CE. It replaces a watered or rather milked down cup of homa in the Zoroastrian formal ceremony. Zoroastrians will also set out a copy of the Korda Avesta, literally the Little Avesta, which is something a bit like the Book of Common Prayer from Christian traditions. Historically, back when everything was copied out by hand and the Kordet Avesta was a tool to help priests and believers in day-to-day life, the Korda was limited to a few excerpts from the Yasna liturgy as an introduction and the 14 prayers and invocations that are supposed to be recited either each day or on regularly occurring special occasions like holidays and funerals. Academically, the same title, Corte Avesta, is used to describe everything other than the Yasna, its commentary, the Visperad, and the Vendidad. Since the 19th century, when Zoroastrian communities in India and Iran started getting more access to printing presses, the Korda Avesta for practical use has gotten longer. The modern version includes the regular prayers, as well as sections of the Yasna that are recited regularly, and other important bits of the Avesta, usually excerpts of the Yasna, Yashts, and Vendidad as the printer or publisher sees fit. These modern editions often include traditional prayers in Middle Persian and Gujarati that developed long after the Avesta, and even devotional commentaries, glossaries, and indices. So sometimes the little Avesta winds up just about as long as the regular Avesta, but don't get them mixed up because if it is being sold as the Korda Avesta, it's still not the whole thing. The good thing about all of these big little Avestas, for believers, general interest, and scholarship alike, is that they are often available in modern languages, like English, with more recent translations of large chunks of scripture that haven't been formally translated as THE Avesta in over a century. But before we drift off into the history of the festival, let's wrap up the modern celebration. Around midday, the ceremony begins. The whole family, and this is an Iranian holiday all about family and giving thanks for what you have, so the whole big extended family stands in front of the table to look into the mirror and pray. I can't find anything explaining whether or not that applies to both the secular version celebrated by the Muslim majority or just Zoroastrians. Please, if you're either, let me know. Then, everyone drinks their sharbat, or halma as applies, and puts the coal around their eyes to represent looking into the sun as a good omen. Handfuls of marjoram, lotus, and sugar plum are thrown into the air, hugs and kisses are exchanged, and then everyone gets to dig into the lovely pile of fruits, nuts, and other food on the table. Now let's dig into the historical side of things. For a start, if you run in the same online circles as me, you'll probably see another crop of people celebrating Maragon again next week. That's because of calendar differences between different Zoroastrian communities. There have been like seven or eight Zoroastrian calendars in history going all the way back to the Achaemenids and beyond. They're all the product of various attempts to keep things in line with the seasons without knowing the precise length of a year down to the second, or line their own celebrations up with the calendars of non-Zoroastrian rulers. Today, Maragon mostly works off the Iranian Jalali calendar, and marks Maragon as the 10th of May, a.k.a. October 2nd, since it follows the same leap day rules as the Gregorian calendar used by most countries. Strictly speaking, this is out of line with the most common Zoroastrian calendar in Iran, which puts everything six days later. And different groups celebrate according to both versions. Then the Parsi community in India has three additional calendars that different mobeds prefer. And you get the idea. The important thing is that it comes 195 days after Nauru's. And this is all kind of important because a lot of the origin story and history of Maragon is tied up in calendar stuff, but it's less about which specific calendar you're using. Let's start with what exactly Joshne Maragon is. The name like most Zoroastrian technical terminology, is Middle Persian. Joshan meaning feast, a of? Meragon, Mer's Day. Mer is the Middle Persian form of Mithra, so the Feast of Mithra's Day. And why exactly is the 195th day of the year Mithra's Day? Well, regardless of which version of the Zoroastrian calendar you are using, Each of the months is named for a divinity, Ahura Mazda, some of the Amesha Spentas, and several Yazadas. Within those months, each of the 30 days is also named for a different divinity, repeating the same cycle of names each month with Ahura Mazda on days 1, 8, 15, and 23, and 26 other divinities taking up the rest of the days. So Mithra's day in Mithra's month was recognized as an important holiday for that Yazada. There is one divinity's name day in each month, but only about half of them line up to have a name day in a name month, so the others are filled in by the Amesha Spentas who don't have their own day in the regular cycle. Listeners doing the math and listeners with long memories can team up here to recall that after the 360 days represented over the course of 12 months, there are five days included in the Festival of Froardagon, which I discussed more in the 2020 holiday special about Nowruz. The neat logic behind Maragon's date is that it means we can safely date it to a point in time after Zoroastrians developed a formal calendar. That was almost certainly a 360-day lunar calendar at first, but in the Achaemenid period, a 365-day version was adapted, probably borrowing the idea from Egypt. For government purposes, the exact calendar system doesn't matter too much, but if you've got religious ceremonies associated with the seasons, then a 365-day calendar is going to keep you in line with those dates much longer than the 360-day version. That would have been important to the earliest Zoroastrian calendar makers because they already had the Gahanbars, six seasonal festivals celebrated throughout the year, which originally marked important agricultural events. Most importantly for our case, the harvest and bringing livestock back into the corrals for winter. In the modern calendar, those events are celebrated in mid-September and mid-October. Before the calendar, astronomers would just have lined them up with the solstices and equinoxes but the advent of imperfect calendars caused fixed dates to shift around. They probably started as one-day festivals, but when the 365-day calendar was applied, chaos ensued that, caused, that led to confusion about when to celebrate each holiday and stretched out the Gahanbar festivals. Converting the modern calendar favored by Iranian Zoroastrians There is now a holiday that runs from September 12th to 16th and October 12th to 16th, but also Maragon on October 8th. According to some theories about the initial switchover, these festivals might have stretched out to 10 days in the early Achaemenid period. So then, one ends on September 22nd, another starts on October 8th, and before long, one is coming right back around on October 12th. The whole season was just lousy with holidays. And then Darius the Great came along and added his own secret ingredient into the mix. That ingredient was naturally assassinating King Bardia, whether you believe he was a magian imposter or not. Thanks to the Behistun inscription, we know that Darius's coup occurred on the 29th of September 522 BC. Except, there's another layer in there. The Achaemenid civil calendar was based on the 360-day Babylonian calendar, and it didn't line up directly with the 360-day Zoroastrian calendar or the later 365-day version. So September 29th just happened to be Maragon, 522 BC. But already having a religious holiday wasn't enough. Darius the Great declared that the anniversary of Bardia's death would be a royal holiday, marked on the Achaemenid calendar. The Greeks called this event Magaphonia, for reasons I'll get to in a second. So now you've got a civil holiday following one set of dates and three religious holidays following a different set of dates while also not being totally clear on what set of dates that was supposed to be. Long story short, they started to overlap and cross-pollinate. The most obvious example is how Maragon became a second harvest festival just two weeks after the end of the Paiti Shahem Gahambar. Literally, the start of the proper season for bringing in the harvest. But we've also got Magaphonia in here. One theory, mostly because the two names sound pretty similar, is that the Greeks just misunderstood the name Maragon. However... Mer is the Middle Persian form, so the Old Persian name would probably have been something like Mithroka or Mithrayav in Avestan. You'll occasionally see the word Mithrakana cited as an Old Persian name, even in relatively reputable sources. But this is a misunderstanding of the etymology presented by the Victorian scholar James Darmatester, who is actually the only English translator for most of the Avesta. He called Mithracana the ancient form of the word, but goes on to specify that by ancient he means Parthian, not Achaemenid. In Old Persian, Mithrakanah would mean the digging of Mithra, which is just silly. Magaphonia in Greek is literally Magi-speaking day. It refers to a practice associated with the holiday, commented on by both Herodotus and Theseus. On the anniversary of the death of Gomata, the evil magi, it was customary to heckle and insult the priesthood in public. The Greek sources also report another aspect of the festival's origins, saying that the public spontaneously murdered all of the magi in the surrounding towns when Darius killed Gomata. There's a couple reasons to doubt this. One is that they attribute it to Darius killing a Magi, which most historians doubt actually happened. The other is that the other Magi just wouldn't have been associated with Gomata. Nor would the peasants have known that Gomata was a Magos, according to Darius's story. It was supposed to be this big secret. However, it at least presents an alternate etymology from maguzati, which would mean killing of magi, and is at least closer to what the Greeks were talking about. Modern historians have traditionally assumed that the Greeks made the holiday up, misunderstanding the coincidence of the anniversary coinciding with Maragon and arguing that it would be inconceivable for there to be a celebration just for insulting honored priests. However, that deserves a little bit of reassessment. The ancient world is rife with holidays that were celebrated with role reversals, breaking convention, and dishonoring the honorable. Theseus, who again lived in the royal court for 17 years, says that the holiday was still celebrated in his own time, Which lends some credence to the idea that the Magi were indeed insulted as part of the festivities. A sliver of that tradition may actually have been remembered in Maragon forever after. The Vajakard Edini is a Middle Persian text from the 13th century, preserved by the Parsi community in Mumbai. It references how Maragon began as a celebration following the legendary hero king Faradun's defeat of the evil Zahak, a sorcerer influenced by Angra Mainu to usurp the throne of Iran from its rightful rulers. Faradun, a descendant of the true dynasty, was assisted by a non-royal warrior in killing Zahak and reclaiming the throne. They attributed their victory to Mithra and established this new holiday. You may remember that story from episode 77, The Yashts, where I describe the Avestan original in which Faradun is simply a mortal hero and Zahak was a dragon. But the story evolved over time. A few scholars have tried to connect this tale to Cyrus the Great overthrowing Astyages, but really, come on. A hero of the true royal blood and his friend overthrow an evil magician ruling Iran on behalf of the great lie. That's like a one-to-one parallel with the Behistun inscription. Theseus says that the Magaphonia was the only day of the year where the king of kings was allowed to be publicly inebriated. That is almost certainly a misunderstanding of something that happened with Achaemenid Maragon. Under normal circumstances, the Greek physician would not have been invited to participate in religious ceremonies, but as a major holiday, he would have seen this one. From his perspective, the Persians drank a yogurty beverage during the religious rites and then sat down to feasting as the king got ever more intoxicated. They drank very lightly alcoholic fermented yogurt all the time, stuff like modern Dug, so Theseus probably didn't think much of this. In reality, they were drinking homa, a moderately powerful stimulant, and washing it down with wine. So it's not that the king was drunk, but that the king was experiencing a powerfully spiritual high at the same time. What I'm saying is that Theseus was really taken aback seeing Artaxerxes II get totally blitzed once a year. The final Achaemenid tradition associated with Magaphonia and Maragon was gift-giving, or rather gift-exchanging. Just about halfway through the year, Maragon probably accompanied Naruz as the second big holiday for tribute collection and accounting, where the treasures of the empire were presented in a grand parade through Persepolis or one of the other capitals. Based on timing, this would have been when the king was in residence in Parsa, just before getting ready to go to Susa for the winter. It was also one of the few occasions where anybody, rich or poor, common or noble, could enter the Apadana and approach the king of kings himself, with a small gift, and ask for a royal boon. On a wider scale, this probably gave rise to the practice of including silver coins and purple fabric in popular Maragon festivities. By the Sassanid period, a few centuries later, it had probably absorbed something with the second autumnal Gahambar festival. The Ayathram Gahambar marked the proper season for bringing home the herds, indicating that winter was coming. The approach of winter also made this a good time for the great and the good to distribute winter cloaks and boots to their guards and servants. Ultimately, that distribution became tied to Maragon, and is still represented today in the practice of wearing a new outfit. was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them. But just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. Available on desktop or as an app, it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. All of this is great. Everyone liked to celebrate the harvest, of course. It's a time when you have tons of food in a world where that wasn't always common. Getting ready for winter is always a big deal, especially in a religion where the cold months represent an assault from the literal forces of evil, in addition to just being depressing in general. Every good empire has a holiday to celebrate something from their foundation, so why not the day that the Achaemenid dynasty really began? But in all of that, something about the festival of Mithra's day is conspicuously missing. There's barely a word about the Yazada himself. And, of course, Mithra has been bumping around as a name in the podcast basically since episode 2 but I've never actually sat down and explained him. And for our purposes, specifically what was going on with Mithra in the Achaemenid period. I did talk a bit about his origins back in episode 77, because he kind of absorbed the role of the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash, and then displaced the importance of the actual Zoroastrian sun Yazada, Hivare. So to start... Mithra is the Lord of Oaths and closely associated with the power of the sun, though he's not the one actually driving the solar chariot. Hivare got to keep the literal day job. Mithra was important from a very early point, like pre Zoroastrian early. He is one of the few gods that was so important that he features prominently in Zoroastrianism, the Vedas, and later Hindu traditions after several other Vedic gods had been subsumed into the Hindu pantheon. Even in the Avesta, he is described as one of the oldest Yazadas in all creation, someone who even other good divinities offered prayers and sacrifices to. And he is one of the few invoked in prayer alongside Ahura Mazda himself. Mithra is even just one of two Yazadas given the title Ahura, like Ahura Mazda. He was even so important that he stuck around in Indian Buddhism and got picked up first by the Hellenistic-era Greeks and then the Romans, where he was famously the center of the Mithraic mysteries as their supreme god Mithras. And if I can complain publicly, just a little bit, the amount of attention that the Roman Mithras gets is supremely irritating. It makes it very hard to research anything about Mithra in his original Iranian context, and leads to all sorts of nonsensical interpretations about Zoroastrian Mithra based on stuff the Romans came up with all on their own. I'll save that full discussion for some far-off episode when we actually get to dealing with Rome in 200 years. But Jesus! Mithras is an obstacle when trying to learn about Mithra. I will say, as a bit of a teaser, with a fair amount of Zoroastrian theology and legend under my belt, some of the Roman interpretations of Iranian beliefs are very funny. Most of our information about who Mithra was, and what he represents as a divinity, is from the Avesta. There are scattered references throughout the Yasna, Vendidad, and Calendar texts, but most are direct quotes from the Mir Yasht, dedicated to Mithra and the longest Yasht in the surviving Avesta, probably one of the longest ever composed. It's also thought to be a pre-Zoroastrian hymn originally constructed in Old Avestan and adapted to be more explicitly Zoroastrian in nature in the 9th or 10th centuries BC. There are ancient Greek sources from all of the authors we know and love. They're roughly as useful as ever when it comes to Iranian religion which is to say, extremely garbled, reliant on being able to accurately interpret which Greek god's name they translated Persian divinities into, and extraordinarily superficial. Despite his evident importance and very early appearance as a popular deity in Greek accounts of the Persian Empire, Achaemenid sources are almost completely silent on Mithra, and his equally important female counterpart, Anahita, right up until the reign of Artaxerxes II. And that is why I chose to cover Mithra this year. The only reason we can say Achaemenid sources aren't entirely silent on Mithra is because he can be inferred through a few archaeological finds. Mithra began in prehistoric Indo-Iranian times as a god of contracts and oaths. The literal divine form of a sacred promise as a concept. As a simple noun, Mitra literally means oath. That remained an aspect of Mithra's divine sphere forever. Oaths are sworn in his name, and to violate an oath or contractual obligation was a sin directly against Mithra himself. Oathbreakers are characterized as people lying directly to the Yazada. As an extension of this, Mithra is characterized as he who is truth-speaking, a leader in assemblies with a thousand ears well-shaped, with a thousand eyes high and full of knowledge, strong, sleepless, and ever awake. Mithra surrounds the world on all sides to observe everything and everyone. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So don't lie about promising to sell me your cow for goodness sake. That last bit is pulled straight out of the Vendadot. Lying about a cattle exchange is the example used for violation of a contract and an act blamed on the diva known as Ashmauga, the evil spirit who drives humanity towards apostasy. The punishment for a first offense has been lost to time, but repeat offenders are sentenced to 1,400 lashes, and those who lie under investigation are sentenced directly to hell. Do not pass go, do not collect your 200 darics. There, the Oathbreaker will be dismembered by bronze knives, stabbed all over with bronze nails, thrown off a cliff 100 times his own height, and impaled on a stake before being allowed to appeal their case to Mithra and Rashnu. Another Yazada I'll talk about in a little bit. Mithra is actually depicted as the leader of a small cohort of companion yazadas. They are not universally associated with Mithra alone, but they all play roles as his assistant in various spheres of influence. One of these is Atar, the bearer of Ahura Mazda's warmth and light represented on Earth in the form of fire. Part of Mithra's role in oath-taking May have involved Atar's earthly form as an embassy. The Rig Veda, the earliest Indic religious text predating Zoroastrianism as a belief system by several centuries, describes a ceremony wherein alliances and treaties between two armies are solidified with an oath to Mitra, sworn before an open fire by representatives who took seven steps, passing one another in front of the flames, to represent going over to the other side. A similar ceremony is actually described for weddings. We know that the Greeks understood the importance of fire in Persian religion, and that the Achaemenids swore oaths in Mithra's name, so similar practices may have been at play. Mithra's other early role was as a god of pastures and horses, his greatest blessing is making his worshippers' horses faster and healthier, and his most common epithet is Mithra, Lord of Good Pastures. In the Mir Yasht, Mithra describes himself as the kind keeper and maintainer of all animals. The same passage actually suggests a bit of a theological dispute happening at the time of the Yasht's composition. Mithra laments that he is not worshipped with animal sacrifices the way other gods were, and expresses that his role as keeper of animals does not mean that he would not bless those who sacrificed in his name. This is striking because horse sacrifices are closely associated with Mithra worship in other contexts, even early Iranian ones. Most notably, horses were routinely sacrificed at the tomb of Cyrus the Great, for reasons I'll get to later. There's a theme here. Mithra was always honored with libations of milk, homa, or wine, though, so he wasn't being neglected. He also apparently shared this animal domain with Dravaspa, the Yazada guardian of horses, as well as Vayu, the Yazada of winds, and Rama, a divinity we know very little about who was eventually conflated with Vayu. Rama probably shares his origins with the Hindu god of the same name, of Ramayana fame. The latter two also had roles as divinities associated with oaths and contracts. Go figure. And of course, Mithra was associated with the sun, actually from a very early point, but not as explicitly as a solar god like Hivare, or the Greek Apollo. As discussed in episode 77, that association really took root in the Achaemenid period due to his perceived similarities with the Mesopotamian and Elamite god Shamash, god of oaths, and the sun. In the Avesta, Mithra's association with the sun is indirect. His battle against the diva was manifest in the world with the Breaking Dawn, and several ceremonies in his honor were held at daybreak. One of Mithra's jobs was to fend off the diva who brought night to the world, and then wake up Hivare, telling the Yazada who actually rode in the solar chariot that the coast was clear for him to ride across the sky once more. By extension of all of these roles as the Punisher of Oathbreakers, Lord of Horses, and warrior against the diva. Mithra is a war god, one of the most explicitly warlike divinities in the entire Zoroastrian cosmology. Many scholars interpret the original divas of Zoroaster's Gathas as the gods who patronized hostile tribes and cattle thieves attacking the Zoroastrian community. Not Mithra, though or depending on your interpretation, yes, Mithra, in Zoroaster's original plan, but the Lord of Wide Pastures was just too popular to keep away and got to stick around as a Yazada. The description from the Mir Yasht is beautiful and violent and detailed. It's a little too wordy to quote all of it directly in this episode, but... Here's my summary, kind of pulling descriptions from different parts of the hymn. Mithra is the spirit who inspires warriors to charge into battle and hold the line against their enemies. When the outer wings of the army begin to waver, Mithra is the one who inspires men in the center to push through the enemy line. He twists enemy arrows and javelins and deflects their swords and clubs away from the true believer. Mithra inspires fear in the enemy. He is even portrayed as the superior and commander of Verathranga, another warrior divinity directly associated with victory in battle. Verathranga takes on the form of a monstrous boar and brings disease and destruction down on those who violate oaths to Mithra, and in the cosmic battle, Mithra looses him against the Daiva. Mithra is described as a warrior with strong arms who breaks the skulls of the Daiva, the punisher of oath-breakers, who appears in places where righteous armies gather their troops. He is the Yazada with the most beautiful, glorious, diva smiting glittering weapons. In battle against the diva, he wears a silver helm and a coat of golden armor. Most terrifyingly, Mithra wields a mace cast from bronze, shining hues of copper red and golden brass, studded with a hundred knots and one hundred edges. Mithra is the angry Ahura who rushes against his enemies from a thousand different sides. He is victory-making, army-governing, power-wielding, and power-possessing, endowed with a thousand senses... And riding in a glorious chariot with large gilt wheels, adorned with golden ornaments, and drawn by four white horses, shod with golden shoes on the foreleg and silver on the hind. One side of the chariot carries a thousand bows with a thousand arrows, fletched with vulture's feathers, notched with a bronze fixture, carved from animal horn and tipped with gold to be fired through the heavens at oncoming Daiva. The other side carries a thousand steel warhammers and a thousand two-edged swords. Dina, the divinity representing the proper practice of Zoroastrian religion, paves the way for his chariot across the cosmos, meaning that proper practice of religion on earth ensures Mithra's continued progress. Man, I want detailed, scripturally accurate artwork of that. Like a Renaissance painting. As a punisher of oathbreakers and smiter of evil on the battlefield, it's no wonder that Mithra took on the role of a Chthonic divinity as well, one who is associated with the afterlife. This is where the horse sacrifices at Cyrus the Great's tomb come in. Mithra was associated with guiding souls from this mortal plane up to paradise, and as a divinity closely associated with horses, the sacrifice was probably intended to ask Mithra to render favorable judgment and not cast the great king down into the house of lies, Angra fiery hell. This role is almost absent from the Avesta, and is only implied by some Greek sources. However, it does seem to have been fully developed by the Achaemenid period, and persisted thereafter in Zoroastrian oral traditions. It's only really fleshed out in the early medieval Zoroastrian texts from the 9th to 11th centuries, when believers and Muslim Iranians alike began to realize they needed to start writing these things down or risk losing their traditions forever as fewer and fewer priests and poets were around to commit it to memory. The most detailed accounts of Zoroastrian afterlife thus come from the Bundahishan, a treatise on Zoroastrian cosmology, and the Menog Ikrad a work of wisdom literature to advise future generations. Mithra was the head of a tribunal of Yazadas who judged the dead before sentencing them to eternity in Ahura Mazda's heavenly paradise, known as the House of Songs, or torment in Angur Mainyu's House of Lies. His co-judges were Srausha and Roshnu. Sraosha is the Yazada who provides humanity with a conscience and governs observance of religious rites. His own Yash describes him as Ahura Mazda's teachings incarnate in divine form. He turns the Daiva against one another to keep them from harming humanity and battles them alongside Mithra with both prayers and a mace of his own though it isn't described in the same exquisite detail as Mithra's weapons. His most famous single battle came when he aided the legendary Faradun against the evil dragon Dahaka. But his most constant adversary is Aishma, the diva of Wrath, who tries to lead men away from Asha by inducing them to wantonly slaughter cattle and commit atrocities in war a fitting counterpart to your conscience. Like Mithra, Srasha is a sleepless guardian against the forces of evil, but he is also a teacher and lawgiver who directs mankind in the ways of proper religion. In his Yasht, he is worshipped through a sacrifice dedicated not just to Srausha, but to a host of other Yazadas and divine figures. His sister is Ashi, the Yazada of recompense and forgiveness. Rashnu is the Yazada of justice. In his Yasht, he is worshipped in a ritual where priests brandish barsam bundles toward a roaring fire, a pot of boiling milk, and a jar of oil and sap. He is the smiter of thieves and bandits who keeps track of their wicked deeds and a friend to the righteous, who is said to inhabit every part of the universe. In later literature, Rashnu is described as the pure essence of Asha, and a companion of both Mithra and Emeritat, the feminine Amesha Spenta who represents immortality, both for divine spirits and the human soul. These three, Mithra, Srausha, and Rashnu were enthroned at the center of the Chinvat Bridge, a great cosmic crossing that connects the gates of heaven and hell, built by Zervon, the god of time. So yes, the bridge from life to death is literally the passage of time. The gate to heaven was located atop the mythical Mount Harbuz, identified with the Alborz Mountains in northern Iran from later literature, presumably implying its highest peak on Mount Damavand. This gate was guarded by a great hound. People interested in comparative mythology will probably notice a similarity to the three-headed Cerberus from Greece, the four-eyed Garm who guards Helheim in Norse myths, or the equally four-eyed dogs of Yama in Hinduism. The bridge itself is described as nine lances long and nine wide, which is only about 27 meters or 80 feet, but also stretching far, far to the north over the Caspian Sea and ending at the Gates of Hell, which lies deep beneath the earth somewhere in the frigid steppe. After a person died, their body was to be left out for three days in order to be purified by feral dogs and carrion birds. In that time, the mortal soul had to shelter in its body while it was harassed by the daiva. But then, the soul could leave its former home and travel to the Chinvat Bridge, guided by Srausha through crowds of demons trying to lead the deceased away. Once there... Rashnu weighs the deceased soul on his golden scales. For most, the outcome will be clear, but when it is not, the Yazadas sit and deliberate on the content of that person's life on Earth. A horde of Daiva stand witness to the proceedings, eagerly hoping for a new victim to celebrate. Mithra himself announces the verdict, and then Srausha takes over again leading the soul up to the House of Songs, encountering spirits in the form of a fattened cow, a beautiful maiden, and a comfortable breeze that represent good deeds in life along the way. Once through the gate, they are greeted by Vohumana, the Amesha Spenta representing righteous thought who delivered Zoroaster's first revelation. Alternatively, the wicked are handed over to a diva called Vizoresh, who beats and torments the damned on their way to the House of Lies. And while we're on the subject of the afterlife, because I just friggin' love this, the Vendidad says that dogs are not subjected to this judgment. Instead, as pure beings of Ahura Mazda's life and power on Earth, They are reincarnated in concentrated form. Every thousand deceased dogs are passed through Anahita's restoring waters and turned into an otter. So each otter contains the souls of a thousand dogs, and that's why killing one will bring ruin to your whole country. Do not kill the water dog. This Chthonic role relates to Mithra's association with another pre-Iranian deity in the Achaemenid period. In addition to Shamash, Mithra was compared to the Elamite god in Shushinak. He was originally the patron deity of Susa, as in in shush who was also king of the underworld. Through the Middle and Late Bronze Age, he was the king of the Elamite pantheon as a whole. But in the Iron Age, that fell to Humban, a deity who had actually held the title in very early Elamite history and reclaimed it for unclear reasons. Elamite legal records record that Nshushinok was closely associated with oaths with slightly more tablets carrying oaths in his name than the Mesopotamian import Shamash. Of course, sharing that role made Inshushinak an easy comparison for Mithra. This will play more of a role in an upcoming episode, but Mithra's connection to Enshushanak probably played an important role in new theological developments under the last few Achaemenid kings. And Shushanak was one-third of a divine triad worshipped in Elam from the beginning of the Middle Bronze Age. He appeared alongside Napirisha, literally the Great God, who was associated with the creation of the mortal world. So, easy comparison to Ahura Mazda. The third member was Napirisha's mythological wife, Kiririsha, the Great Goddess. She was associated with warfare and life-giving water, but also the primordial rivers beneath the earth. She was conflated with Anahita, a similarly warlike and life-giving nyazada of pure waters. And you'll notice, if you were paying attention to some of the Achaemenid inscriptions in recent episodes, that it is Ahura Mazda, Mithra, and Anahita who are revered in Artaxerxes' official statements. Enshushinok was also part of another triad. He was the chief judge of dead souls in the Elamite afterlife, declaring the verdict of whether they would face paradise or punishment. Enshushinok was assisted in his duty by at least two other gods, Ishmikarib, the hearer of prayers, and Lagamal, the merciless judge. These two were tasked with guiding souls of the dead to Enshushanak's court for judgment. There is also a deity identified in Elamite texts as the Scale Holder, and it's not clear if this is a fourth deity or part of Lagamal's role. A council of nameless gods sat as witnesses. The whole thing sounds very similar to the Zoroastrian version. And that's probably because the Iranians adopted the Elamite story of judgment only through Nshushanak's association with Mithra, and potentially Rashnu's connection to the other two. The version of the Chinvat Bridge referenced briefly in the Gathas and Vendidad, ironically the earliest and latest parts of the Avesta, is markedly different. Described in a little detail by Book 19 of the Vendidad, following the three-day waiting period after death, Mithra himself escorts the souls of the righteous to the Chinvat Bridge, while Vizoresha, the diva, drags the wicked there in chains. On the bridge, they are approached by Dina, representing the true religion in the guise of a beautiful maiden. She is accompanied by not one, but two dogs, Ohora Mazda's own divine companions. One is a docile companion animal, while the other takes the form of a mastiff used to guard livestock. And it is this shepherd dog that sniffs out the sins of the wicked. Thus Dinah, rather than Srosha, leads the righteous up to heaven and dismisses the sinful back into Vizarasha's custody. You can see the bones of the later story in there. Mithra and Vizoresha are both present. The dead are brought up to the bridge and judged. Heaven has its own canine guardian. In the Rashnu Yasht, the first home of Rashnu is identified as Mount Harbus, the gateway to heaven. And in the Vendidad, Rashnu sits next to Mithra as a judge of oath-breakers. The overriding constant through all of this is, of course, Mithra, the great warrior against the diva, lord of good pastures, keeper of horses, and guarantor of oaths. It's no wonder he was considered so important, or that his annual festival became such a big deal. But for now, we leave Mithra behind and return to your regularly scheduled podcast. Yes, every time I get to talk about mythology, the episode ends up really long. And yes, that's going to keep happening. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find the Achaemenid family tree, my bibliography, and the support page for the podcast where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That's affiliate links, that's one-time donations, and most importantly, really, that is Patreon. If you click the links on the website or go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to different benefits from a monthly subscription that include things like bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and discounts on History of Persia merch. But of course, you don't have to spend money to support the podcast because the best way to support an independent podcast like this is always the free option of telling other people how much you like the history of Persia. Go on social media, go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, go on whatever platforms do reviews these days and tell people that you're enjoying the podcast. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast and on Twitter at Just History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.